This morning's topic is going to be focused on that Ephesians passage. So if you want to stay with me in the Bible, we'll be in Ephesians 4 mostly. So you can turn there back to that passage. This morning's topic is really a discipleship topic. I want to speak to those who consider themselves Christians. And I try to ask the question of saved for what? What am I saved for? What are you saved for? Why is God in the business of saving people? To what end has he called us and redeemed us? Because if we understand what he saved us for, then we, we know what our purpose is, then we know how we should live. And the scriptures show us quite a bit about what that looks like. Now, even though this is a sermon this morning that is aimed more at Christians, if you're not convinced yet of Jesus, if you're not sure, if you wouldn't say definitively, I'm a follower of Christ, it is still helpful to consider this because you're here this morning because God is drawing you toward himself. And you want to take a look and see, well, what is it that Christ expects of a person who becomes a believer? So even though I'll be addressing Christians this morning, if you're not sure yet, it will be helpful to you, I believe. It's very useful for seekers too. Now, the church that is healthy, a healthy body of believers gets noticed. There's an, a, a, an older, um, not ancient, but it sometimes feels like an ancient chorus that says they will know we are Christians by our love. You know that song? We've been singing that for a number of decades. The world will know we are Christians by our love because they will look in and they will see something that looks very different than what they see when they look at the rest of culture and society. They will know we are Christians by our love. And a healthy church, a healthy body of believers will get noticed. In fact, in the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, when he's in um, chapter 1, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So this is, that's in chapter 1, verse 15. When Paul is writing to this church, these Ephesians, he's saying, I've already heard of your love, your love for the saints. Your reputation has gone ahead of you, and I give thanks to God for that. But then apparently, he doesn't know this community all that well, and he's got some concern about certain people in the community. Because look at what he says in, in chapter 4 in verse 19. He's distinguishing the old life of the way of the Gentiles and the new life of faith in Christ. And he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, he makes concession that there might be some in the church there who have not stepped into full discipleship or they've not been taught what Christ is about. So he explains some more about it. Now, here's the problem I see back then as well as today, is that we have a million-dollar salvation, and we have a five-cent response. We have a million-dollar salvation and a five-cent response. And we spend a lot of time focusing on how great the salvation is, and then we're not sure what the next step is. We don't know what to do with it. The salvation is so big and grand, but somehow there's a disconnect between that and then what our lives should look like once we recognize how great God is. And in this letter to the Ephesians, the apostle takes three whole chapters talking about the, the incredible glories of salvation, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, all that God in Christ has done for us. And he doesn't actually ask anything of his hearers until chapter 4. He simply describes what life apart from Christ is like and what it's like with him. But now when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says, therefore do these things, live this way. The the ethical imperatives begin to come out. He starts to tell us how to live. Now, we've been taught well. 
if you've been around a Bible-believing church, you've probably been taught well that you cannot save yourself. I fight against that idea all the time and say, we don't subscribe to works righteousness. In other words, that you can be a righteous and good person by your works. We're, we're clear on that. We cannot save ourselves. God alone can save us. But where we get confused is that what do we do once we're saved? Do we just wait around for God to make us holy? What's the part that we have in responding? And that's why I say a million-dollar salvation and a five-cent response, because we miss the parts that say, go do these things. You're not saving yourself, but you are responding to his salvation, and when we respond, we start to grow. And when we don't respond, we tend to get stagnant. That's the common experience of the Christian. Ask someone who's been a believer for longer than, let's say, 10 years, and they will tell you, when they put themselves out there in response, they began to grow, and when they just waited for God to change them, they didn't. Test that out. Ask some people about it. See what happens. Now, we, we say you've been saved by grace alone, but there's a nice little saying that says, but not grace that is alone. You're saved by grace alone, but not grace that is alone. In other words, grace needs to then be followed by works. That is the natural thing that springs forth from the free gift of salvation in Christ, is that works begin to happen. You start to do things in response to what God has done for you. Faith brings forth deeds. Jesus' call is a staggering one to us. The invitation is this, come and die with me. That's not a real seeker-sensitive message. That's not real heartwarming. Hey, come and die with me. That's the invitation. Take up your cross daily. In other words, Jesus isn't the only one who has a cross. Because he went to the cross, he invites us to come to a cross as well. And Paul says some things in here that are tough for us to hear, even in this passage. Put off your old self, he says in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the righteousness and in holiness. When I was early on in ministry, very, very new in my faith and had just started to do some youth ministry stuff, I was part of these summer camps that we took junior high kids to. And as often was the case there, kids would for the first time hear about salvation in Christ, and they didn't know what to do with it. And our leadership team was well-trained in how to help kids begin to walk with Jesus. And we were taught a very simple method of sharing the gospel with somebody, the ABCD method. A is about admitting your sin and need for a Savior. B, believe in Christ who died for your sins on the cross. And then C, and this is the hard one, count the cost. And then D is decide to follow him. It's when you get to that C one that gets a little tricky. When I was um, earlier on in, in pursuing ministry, I used to think, how, how can you possibly count the cost if you don't know what Jesus is going to ask you to do? Right? I mean, I was, I was an engineer. I had no idea he was going to ask me to be a priest. I, I just, how can I possibly have counted the cost of deciding to be a Christian if I didn't know that information on the front end? Well, here's how. Jesus says this in Luke um, 14. He says, uh, he gives two, two illustrations. He says, um, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then he gives another illustration. He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and count whether with 10,000 men he's able to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. 
And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, so here's how you count the cost. You assume he's going to ask for everything. And you'd be willing to give him your entire life. And then the interesting thing is he begins to give things back to you to use for his glory. So the only way to possibly count the cost is to assume I'm going to come and die to my old self and let Christ bring a new life in me, and now I'm going to live that new life back to his glory. That's the only way to count the cost, because you don't know what your specific life is going to look like. So admit you're a sinner, believe in the cross and Christ's death for you, count the cost of giving up your old life and taking on the new life he gives you, and then decide to follow him, and you enter into a relationship. You know, Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be living sacrifices, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Now, here's the funny thing about a living sacrifice, is it can crawl off the altar. A living sacrifice can crawl off of the altar, and you and I both know how easy it is to do that, where we get distracted, we pull ourselves away, and we go back into the old life. It draws us away, we're tempted, and we're led astray, we're prone to wander, and so we have to keep returning back to him. Now, one of the men who discipled me early on in my faith used to ask this question. All the time he asked it, hey, Mike, how's your walk? That's how he'd say it. How's your walk? How's your walk with the Lord? Because that's how the Bible refers to it often, that we are walking on a journey with the Lord. In fact, in Ephesians, that that term is used twice. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4, verse 1. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he tells us our, our walk should match the calling. And then in verse 17, he says, I testify, now I say this in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So verse 1 says, walk in a way that's worthy of your calling. Verse 17 says, no longer walk in the way of futility. The way of futility of the Gentiles, it's futile for two reasons. One, they don't know God's purpose. They don't know his purpose for us and his purpose for saving and redeeming us. The other is that they're curved in on themselves. I was looking at um, a picture of an artist, a sculptor, who had been working with wood, and, every, and, and he had this, this, this thing he was shaping, and all around on the floor were thousands of little wood carvings, and every one of them was curved like this, because when the scalpel went in to the wood, it just it peels it up like this. That's such a picture of the life apart from Christ. We are curved inward on ourselves until Christ gives us new life, and then we begin to move into more of an outward posture. We get to, he straightens us out. So now we can be oriented toward the other instead of just toward self. So when we're oriented in towards ourself, we don't even realize God possibly has purposes outside of our own. We can't even see that, and there's futility. So verse 12 in in Ephesians 4, I think, gives us the picture of what God is trying to do and why he saves people. He says that In verse 11, he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body of Christ. So those of us that are set aside for full-time church ministry, leadership, pastors, pastors, evangelists, apostles, prophets, teachers, are to not do the work of ministry, but to equip the saints, which is all the body of Christ, the Christians, to do the work of ministry. It's one of the dangers in a hierarchical church like this that the clergy get pushed up onto a pedestal where you think my ministry, my prayers are somehow more powerful or better than yours, and that inverts the whole picture of the kingdom. So those of us that are set aside for this kind of ministry are supposed to equip you to do the work, the actual work of ministry. 
so that the body of Christ would be built up. So here's the purpose of God in redeeming. He's redeeming for himself a holy people, set aside, a chosen people. God is redeeming a holy people as his own possession, meant to be a light in the world. And so here's what I find to be true, is that God's power is present wherever his purpose is pursued. If you begin to join God in building up the body, you will experience his power in your life. You will experience his power because it's already there working. You're joining God in what he is doing. I have found this to be true, that every, I was looking back over, over the years I've been a Christian, just thinking, every time there's been a significant spiritual growth in my life, it has happened in a place where I've joined others in ministry, where I went on a mission trip, where I began to serve in a specific ministry, where I, whatever, whatever it was, some ministry that built up the body of Christ, when I actively started to serve in it, my spiritual growth went like that. I wonder this morning if you feel stuck, if you feel stagnant, if you feel that God is distant. You know, it's like he hasn't done anything in your life in a while. I wonder if you've been active in ministry. I wonder if you've found your ministry yet and have begun to join him in his work. I was reading an ethics book on the New Testament by a Duke Divinity professor whose last name is Hayes, Richard Hayes, and it was, it was a, a moral vision of the New Testament. And he had identified kind of an overarching theme that you could use to ask the question of how now should we live? What is the New Testament saying about how we should live? And his ethic was that of community, the word community. And here's a real simple question to ask yourself. Two, really. Two questions to ask yourself about your response to salvation. Does what I'm doing promote the health of the body of Christ? Or does what I'm doing reject things that destroy it? What do I do that is building up the body of Christ? And what am I doing that is diminishing those things that are hurting the body of Christ? If I'm focused on those two things, I'm beginning to live a life in response to the good news that is in, in keeping with God's purpose. All of chapter 4 now is about the body. And the first half is about unity within the body, the body of Christ. There is one church, and God's desire is that, that it would be unified in purpose. And then the second half of it is about holiness. Now, it's obvious if you read through that little bit that we read in church to see how lying, stealing, um, unforgiveness, how those things can hurt the body, can hold it down and hinder it. But it's not so obvious what kind of things you could be doing to begin the work of building up the body. So what we're doing as a church, and you're going to keep hearing this, because a wise mentor of mine once said that when you've said the vision so many times that you think if you say it one more time you're going to throw up, the people are almost getting it. You're going to hear this over and over and over again. We in this church are trying to work so that everybody can identify what their ministry is. What is your ministry to help build up the body of Christ? And we're structuring all of our ministries in four categories. Worship, belonging, mercy, and mission. And my call to you, and I think it's a biblical call, is to engage in the work of ministry. We, the staff, are going to work hard to be able to equip you to do the work of ministry because God's desire is that his body would be built up, that it would flourish, that it would look like God wants it to. And those on the outside will look in and will see something that is so healthy and so appealing, it will naturally begin to draw them. They will want what we have because it's God's power at work in relationships. Do you know what your ministry is? Spend some time thinking about what you're engaged in. What, what gets your activity? What gets your time? What gets your resources? What are you investing in or spending yourself on? 
Identify a ministry that somehow builds up the body of Christ and work there, and you will find God's power at work in your life, and it will begin to change you as well, and it will be a glorious thing, and it will bless you. Let's now pray and ask God to speak to us each about where we're supposed to serve. Lord, I thank you that you have not just saved us from something and out of sin, but that you saved us into this glorious picture of the body of Christ. Father, help us to see how to make disciples. Help us to have the courage to begin presuming to work for and with you. Speak to us each about where we fit and how our gifts fit in the whole body. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would receive the glory. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.